Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Medical mistakes. You hear about these when they make the headlines, but how common are the minor misses and what can you do to avoid having it happen to you? Do you feel comfortable asking questions to your doctor if it seems like what you're hearing doesn't make a lot of sense? Well, Karen Ueda, Risk Management Director at Straub Clinic and Hospitals in the studio, we're going to talk about speaking up and staying safe, whether it's in the hospital, in the doctor's office, the emergency room, the operating room, or wherever you get health care. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Karen, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because we often talk about medical topics, but there's a lot of things that occur in medicine that don't necessarily always follow the rules. And so, you know, we hear about things often that don't make sense. Just as I was coming by today, one of my colleagues told me he just had surgery on his left knee and everybody asked him which side, which side, wrote on his leg and just to make sure. And it's because we hear about these things in the media where someone has surgery on the wrong leg or they have a big, you know, even a brain surgery on the wrong side. And those things are fairly uncommon, but they do happen. And so, I wanted to have us have an opportunity to discuss how can we avoid having that happen? How can you, if you go in to see your doctor, if you go to the emergency room, if you go to the hospital, avoid being the next person we hear about in the headlines? Branching off from there, what are the most what are the most common things we hear about? I mean, sure, we hear, you know, the one in a million kind of situation, but common things are common. What are common medical errors that happen? That's an interesting question because we do usually just hear about those things that make the news. You know, they're splashed across the headlines. And yet with the complexity of healthcare delivery and the number of patients that are seen every day um, and the number of people who are involved with those patients, I mean, the, the potential is exponential for medical error. And, and how do we avoid that? A lot of errors that happen never reach the patients. You know, we never, we never see that. It's caught. We have systems in place, safety nets in place to catch uh, maybe the wrong medication was was brought up and um, and you know put in the the patient's drawer. You know those things are caught before it ever happens, and then we look to see what systems failed to make sure that we can prevent those. So most of the errors that happen actually never reach a patient, and and people aren't harmed. Now the FAA has a really interesting way to go about this, you know, and I hate to bring up airlines. We've heard a lot about the airlines in the news, but the Federal Aviation Administration, whenever there's an accident, along with the National Transportation and Safety Board, they come together, they do an analysis, they figure out what caused the problem, whether it be pilot error, mechanical failure, some sort of an issue, and they do their best to investigate and figure out what caused, in this case, some type of near-miss accident or an actual plane accident or something along those lines. They do what they call a root cause analysis. They make it public. And part of the reason I think they do that is for transparency, but also that everybody can learn from it. It's done a little differently in the medical world. It is done a little differently in the medical world. We do have protection to do a root cause analysis so that we can do that 
drill down an investigation without fear of um, some one person being accused or, or some one hospital. And that allows us to really get into the situation and find out what went wrong. Um, I would say a couple of decades ago when the Institute of Medicine published their their work uh, to Errors Human, and we started to look at how easy it is to make medical errors and actually starting to quantify. The Institute of Medicine was quantifying medical error. How frequently does it occur? And it was really very alarming. There were publications about it was more frequent than, you know, certainly um, more people were being killed at the hands of medical error than in automobile accidents. It was very alarming. This was published in 1999. And a lot of the organizations like the Joint Commission um, and and patient safety organizations started looking at that and how can we address that complexity. The airline industry is one of the industries that was looked at. How can you do the root cause analysis and put put the individual aside and really dig down to to what really happened, what system was in place that allowed this error to fall through all the safety nets and happen, and to do that in a way that um, didn't assign blame to the individual, because that's really what gets you caught up in this. You know, people aside, what was the issue? What systems were in place? How could that system be improved to make sure that that doesn't happen again to the next person? And we started really appreciating that a lot of the errors were occurring because we had faulty systems in place. And doing the root cause analysis lets you see that and how you make sure that you have a system that doesn't allow that mistake to get through or that that one individual to make a mistake. Now, we talked about common mistakes, and you mentioned a lot of times it actually doesn't filter down to the patient, to the individual, whether it be a wrong medication that's brought up to the hospital floor or before something is given, someone double checks that. What are some other common things that could potentially happen and do happen that would classify as medical errors? ECRI, which is a, um, it's a nonprofit organization that does risk management for different states and actually does consulting for a lot of different organizations. They have, um, I don't know how to explain them, they're a patient safety organization. And they have the contracts with some of the states that require the reporting of near misses or serious patient safety events. ECRI has been collecting these event reports or information on serious safety events and root cause analysis for the past 10 years, they have over 300,000 event reports. Now, an organization like ours is not going to have 300,000 event reports or that many RCAs, and we're not going to be able to gather that information. ECR, this is a long explanation for what I'm about to tell you, but just this year, ECRI decided it was time to share that information with the public, and they published a top 10 patient safety concerns for 2014, looking at what are those things that happen most commonly? This is available on the internet if any of your listeners would want to look up ECRI. Um, well, let's go through them. They're kind of interesting. We both have a list. We're lucky enough to have sort of a thank you for bringing it a colored list. So yes. it's all fancy. But let's go. Let's take a look. One of them, data integrity failures with health information technology systems. That's a whole lot of words. What does that mean? That's really interesting because back in um, – 1999, when IOM, or the Institute of, of Medicine, published this, they said 
one of the major things we could do to resolve um, patient safety or to improve patient safety and keep mistakes from happening is for everybody to implement an electronic medical record system so that information would be there at your fingertips. Um, We have them. A lot of organizations have them. But again, it's only as good as how it's built. And it is not a panacea. It does make a lot of information available. I've been in risk management, actually in patient safety, since the mid-1980s. There are a lot of things that happened back then in the paper world that wouldn't happen now because the information is at our fingertips. But if the wrong information is at your fingertips, people are going to get hurt. And what ECRI has discovered by looking at their data is unless the we know how the clinical workflow is going to happen, unless we really have an understanding of that, and we verify that the information going into the system is correct, accurate, available, when, it's, when you're pulling a report, is it pulling the right information from that, that patient that you need to provide good and safe care? If those things aren't in place, then you've actually compromised patient safety. Well, sure, and often I'll see in a medical record if something is wrong, then it is replicated in so many different right. people's notes and, and right. other doctors' notes that it almost seems like, well, it's got to be correct because every doctor wrote that, and yet maybe it actually doesn't accurately reflect what's in the record. One of the ways that people can help to contribute is to make sure that they review their record with right. their doctor at different visits. In some groups, and, and you know, Straub is one of those, I know that Kaiser is another one, they actually have the ability to have patients have access to their record through an electronic portal. So, you know, making sure with data integrity, making sure that you know what's there as the doctor, patient knows what's there, and you can both review it is one way to help with that. But I'll tell you, electronic medical records have opened up a whole nother it's a area. whole can of worms sometimes. It, it, it is a can of worms. Yeah, so we're taking that to the next level, and I think healthcare has to take that to the next level. And having having the information accessible to the patient. You know, I'm busy. You're busy. And, you know, in addition to being healthcare employees, we're also patients and, and busy women. It's I like being able to log in and have all my test results right there or communicate with my physician or send her a request for an appointment. That's one of the ways that we can use this to get involved. Another way, instead of having our electronic medical record in silos, how do we make that record available if that patient, maybe they come to our hospital today, maybe they're in an accident on the other side of the island, and they're not coming to our emergency room. They're going someplace else. How can we make sure that that facility has access to the patient's electronic record so they have in their hands immediately all the information they need? So, yeah, number one on the the top 10 patient safety list is data integrity failures with health information technology systems. It's a blessing and a curse. How can we take that to the next level to make sure it's being used to keep the patient safe? Well, and luckily, the Hawaii Health Information Exchange has tried to address this a bit. Also, I know that certain um, certain, certain different medical systems allow communication and view-only access. Right. So if you wind up at Queens, but you go to Straub, they can right. look at your medical record and see what sort of medicines you're on. What and kind vice of allergies versa. you have. Yes, Absolutely. keeps everybody safe. Well, and if you're unconscious, you know, unless you have it written down or tattooed somewhere, that could be a huge That's problem. Right. So, so certainly it seems like we need to get a little better at it, but at least we're addressing it. Okay, another one of the top 10 safety concerns 
concerns for 2014. This is one near and dear to my heart. Poor care coordination with patients' next level of care. That's another mouthful. But basically, you leave the hospital, you go to see your doctor, you're supposed to follow up on a bunch of stuff. Your doctor doesn't know, you don't know, you forget to tell them, somebody forgets to tell them, and ta-da. Is that what they're talking about? That's what they're talking about. And the alarming example that they give in the, the white paper that was published, they give an example of an infant who died from sudden infant death syndrome. Uh, the infant had previously be seen, had been seen in a hospital for a life-threatening event. And because of the abnormal findings on the CT, um, the, in the discharge summary, it was recommended that the, this little patient have an MRI. And that information then wasn't communicated with that next provider of care. So the discharge summary wasn't sent back to the patient's primary care physician. And in the example given by ECRI, the patient didn't undergo the MR study and, in fact, um, in fact died. So these, these are the dramatic events that are seen. But this plays itself out in small ways all the time. Uh, there are a lot of caregivers you see in the hospital. Um, I, not to give away my age, but, you know. Oh, the, 29. 29. Okay. But the doctor who delivered me in the small town hospital um, did house calls, and he saw us for our colds. He delivered babies. He saw my mother through menopause. I mean, he basically did everything. We all knew him. Life was simple. And he didn't have to worry about this continuum of care because he was it. He was it. Yeah. He was it. And he probably had... Uh, um, half a town. He had half a town, okay. and his pharmacy selections were aspirin and penicillin. You know, so that was basically it. But with the complexity that we have now, how do we make sure that that next caregiver is going to do the follow-up that's necessary? And when people are in the hospital, or not in the hospital, but we're in their, then they're in the clinic, there is that anxiety and confusion and the complexity, and they don't really know what to do next or where they're going next. There are things that we can do to make that better. We can give printed information at the end of every visit. We can be making those calls. We can be making those appointments for them. But if you have somebody, let's say, who's elderly, and they leave your office and they've had complex instructions, we can't expect that they're going to remember that. And we have to be there to help them with that continuation of care. Well, and I'd say even more basic. If you go to an urgent care, get a copy of your record when you go to follow up. I mean, how many times, uh, how many times have I said to individuals, okay, so I heard over the weekend, you went to wherever, where's your records? Uh, I don't know. Uh, they didn't give them to me. What I was said, done? Okay. I don't know. Well, what did they do? I don't know. Well, what kind of medicine? Well, the white pills. And so, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't really lead to this continuation of their care if you're not quite certain what happened. And sure, you can call the other clinic and they'll fax it eventually. And maybe you'll get it within an hour. Maybe you'll get it within a day or two. But if you do go somewhere other than your regular doctor, get a copy either of lab test results or what medicine you were given or something. That's one of those ways to help with that transition. Very much. Get that information. Uh, when people come into the hospital, I do recommend, to my, even to my own family, particularly to my own do family. Do they listen to you? Because mine um, don't listen no. to me. <laughs> they're starting to, but I think it's because my mom's in her late 90s, and they're starting to finally ask for help. But, you know, when, when they're hospitalized, get a copy of the history and physical. It's like the magic document. Any patient who comes into the hospital has a history and physical done, and it gives that overview. It's like cliff notes. It's like your 
your body cliff notes. It gives that overview of what's your chief complaint? What did you come in with today? Well, this is the review of your whole body. This is the review of all the systems. And then the short list of the, at the bottom, this is your problem list. We're going to deal with these three things when you're in the hospital. We're going to deal with those five things your primary care will deal with when you discharge. I can't tell you how many people have no idea. It's like, really? I, all these things are wrong? I had no idea. So it gives them a roadmap. And then when they discharge, if you get your hands on the discharge summary, which is, again, a great document to have, you'll get your discharge instructions, but ask for a copy of the discharge summary. Again, it's that wrapping it up. This is what you came in with. This is an overview of what happened when you're here. This is what's still outstanding. These are the recommendations. And it gives you that blueprint because it is so complex. It's an emotionally charged event being in the hospital. And you need this roadmap so that you know when you get out, oh, I'm supposed to do this now. And importantly, you can articulate that to your own family, your own caregivers, rather than it's not a memory test. Healthcare is not a memory test. Um, get these documents. They're immensely helpful. Have it, have it written down. Again, just to have a list of what medications you're taking, right. what you're taking them for. Right. Because how often do people come in and say, oh, don't you have it listed? You know, you have it all in your system there. I take all those medicines, the same ones as last time. And boy, there have been a lot of times when, quote, the same as last time leads to a list of medications. And someone says, I haven't been on that in like a year or two. Why is that on there? Well, because it's unfortunately continued because it's, quote, the same as last time. And now it's in everyone's notes. And you may not actually be taking those medications. So, you know, it goes both ways. Have yeah, the that's information. the partnership. Absolutely, exactly. but also know what to do with it and take charge of that. I think that's really mm-hmm. one of the things that we're going to discuss a little bit, a little bit further. Is how do people go from here are the problems to how can I work to solve them together with right. my provider, whether it be your doctor, your nurse practitioner, your hospital doctors, your family? How can you figure out as a group? how to work on it together. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Karen Ueda. She is our Director of Risk Management at Straub Clinic and Hospital. And we're talking about medical errors. How do they happen? And what are the common ones? And what can you do to avoid them? When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about a program called Speak Up and what these things can do to make sure that the next time you see your doctor or your healthcare provider, that you work together to make sure that everyone's on the same page and you understand all of the choices that are being provided to you. If you've got a question, if you've got a concern, if you've got a tale to tell, help have somebody else along the way, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. On the next Humankind. He is always leading the way on how he's going to do this, how he's going to eat, how he's going to breathe. He's always got strategies, and he always has a sense of humor. So I'm amazed. A remarkable artist who creatively works around the impossible limitations of Lou Gehrig's disease. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. Here's a bright idea. We Ficiency, a new crowdsourcing program that raises funds for select nonprofits to install energy-efficient equipment. 
HPR has been invited to participate, and if we meet our goal, we'll be able to replace the lighting in our studios and significantly lower our electricity bills. HPR's WeFiciency campaign ends on August 3rd, and you can help by going to WeFiciency.org. That's efficiency with a W, because only we can make it happen. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Karen Noetta. She's the Director of Risk Management and has been in patient safety for three decades, although we did <laughs> yes, say you were just 29. I, That's yeah. a little mathematical I, magic. We are talking today about medical errors and how to stay safe if you're a patient and what you can do to make sure that you or your family members are taken care of well. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Before the break, we got through two of our top 10 patient safety concerns. We've got some more to get through. Karen, what else is on the list? There's some things on the list that actually, um, when we talk about the shared decision-making and patients being a partner with their provider, there's some things on the list that lend themselves to that and might be more interesting to your listeners. And there's some things on the list that really are the, the burden of the healthcare provider. I think the test result reporting errors are one of those things. It's, it's on the list. But it's one of those things that really the, the onus is on the provider to make sure we've got um, we've got the right patient and that we're getting the results to the right provider so that action can be taken on those. And a lot of work has been done. There are a lot of um, recommendations made by ECRI. There are recommendations for uh, reducing error that have come out of root cause analysis to really make sure that the organization gets the right result and they get them to the right person if it's an abnormal finding. That's not to say that the patient can't be involved in this piece of it as well. As we were talking about earlier with the electronic medical record, some organizations have a portal that the patient can access so they can see their own test results so that they will know, you know, there's not that delay in waiting to communicate an abnormal result to a patient when they can see it themselves. So they can actually be involved in that, even though the onus really is on the organization to be communicating those uh, abnormal test results. Well, and one of the good practice patterns is, you know, as a doctor, if you order it, you're responsible for it. So that if, if I order a test result that's abnormal, it's my job to communicate that to the individual. And if they want to know, they can always call us. And if it's normal, please do. The old, the old mantra, no news is good news, may not be so good after all. If My thought is, and I, and I often tell individuals this, if you've taken the time to go to the lab or to the radiology department or wherever to do the testing, take the time to call me, and I will take the time to get back to you if your results are normal or not. And, you know, also, please feel free, come into the office. We can review them in person. But in addition, just, just to take that extra step, because sometimes things can get missed, and there's always stories about... You know, so-and-so had a chest x-ray, and they were supposed to follow up, and they assumed it was okay. No one called them, and then, you know, lo and behold, six months, a year later, oh, did you ever follow up on your re un abnormal x-ray? No, nobody told me to. And so these things happen. I don't want them to happen, and I'm going to say I don't tolerate them happening, but if they do, let's make sure it doesn't. So if you do a test, get the result from the doctor who ordered it. And I do want to pick up on something you said about no news is good news, and that's not 
that's not necessarily the case or always the case. And sometimes if somebody has a concerning result or they've had to be retested, let's say they had to go in for another mammography because of a concerning result on the first one, not being called back about that result doesn't necessarily mean everything's okay. And I think there's a tendency, certainly there is on my part, when I'm in the role of a patient and a woman, not a healthcare worker, when I'm in that role of a patient, I want to believe that, well, I guess they didn't call me back because everything's okay. There's part of me that knows that that's not true. Oh, we all slip into but that we, pattern, But we all we? fall into that. So again, that, that partnership is one of those key things that's going to prevent medical errors. Continuing on this list, we have drug shortages. And that people might think that that's not going to affect them. But the drug manufacturers are doing manufacturing only those things that they need in a certain period of time. And if there's not a lot of demand for the drug, they're not going to manufacture a lot of it. And on the same token, the hospitals are going to order it as they need it. They're not going to keep stockpiles of medications. So every once in a while, we get ourselves into a situation where we have a shortage. And a shortage is something that somebody really needs. And we have to plan for those shortages. We have to work with our drug companies. We have to work with our vendors and also have alternatives available when that shortage comes up. And you'll hear about the shortages in the news every once in a while. It's where that the manufacturing, um, the needs of the manufacturer butt up against the needs of the healthcare organization. And how do you, how do you balance that? Well, and the easiest one to think of is how many years have we had a flu shot shortage? Yeah. Quite a few. And so, you know, we do have to to take into consideration people who are at higher risk for developing the flu need to get the shot first, healthcare workers, those who are ill and infirm. And so sometimes these things happen and it really can affect your Mm -hmm. health. So good to keep an eye on those things. And at least from the from the individual perspective, if you know you need something, try and get it early if it's time limited, like flu shots, etc. Before we go down our list, I want to quick talk with Wiley from Hawaii Island. He's our caller today. Wiley, welcome to The Body Show. Hello. Hello there. What can we do for you? Yeah, 16 years ago, I had an experience uh, in an emergency room. At work, I experienced a uh, severe uh, stress-related um, visual migraine attack where my eyes were getting all, you know, blurry. So I was taken by a colleague to the emergency room, and so the doctor uh, wanted to give me aspirin to make sure that my blood would be thin in case I was having a stroke, and I told him, absolutely do not give me aspirin, because I would have an acute respiratory response. In fact, I have a card, I have a, a medic alert card that says do not give me aspirin or penicillin. Well, anyway, we argued and argued about it, and he... he I just he got he just kept insisting to give me aspirin. I finally gave up, and he gave me aspirin. And of course, lo and behold, five minutes later, I had an acute respiratory response, and then he had to intervene by giving me a huge injection of uh, I think it's epinephrine or something. You got it right. Yeah, that would be it. And um, it didn't seem to concern him. You know, oh, okay, well, too bad. You know. And I'm just wondering, um, do doctors, if I, if I came in unconscious and they took out my card, my medical alert card, and it says do not give aspirin or penicillin. Well, I hope we would listen, Wiley. I'm so sorry that happened to you. You know, 16 years ago, 
that is far enough away from having electronic medical records. But you're absolutely right. If you have a card that says, don't give me aspirin, hey, I'm not going to breathe, it's it's really inappropriate for somebody to say, let's try it anyway. Let's see how it goes. So you're correct. And what I'm really happy to hear is that you stood up and said, I don't think so. But what I would love to hear is that it'll never happen again. And when you said I gave up because I just said, Okay, fine. Give it to me. Let's see what happens. Luckily, you were in a healthcare setting, so a reversal could be given, and you're absolutely correct. That was epinephrine, and that helps to reverse that acute, sudden, what we call an anaphylactic reaction to aspirin. But I want to make sure that if anybody out there is allergic to aspirin or penicillin, if you know you're allergic to a medicine, don't give up. And hopefully, you know, there won't be any doctor who tries to tell you, hey, you should take this anyway. It's not a big deal. Depending on the severity of your reaction, Wiley, it could have been life-threatening. So I'm so glad that you carry the card, A-plus on that, that you brought it up, A-plus-plus on that. And, you know, D-minus for the person who said, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you anyway, because that, that was really a risky thing to do and hopefully will never happen in the future. My suggestion is don't give up next time. Don't let them wear you down. If you know you're allergic to something, if you know you have a reaction to it, do not accept it under any circumstances. So good job for trying. And I hope we as physicians have gotten better to the point where that won't happen again. Uh, Karen, you got to wonder, in this day and age, particularly with electronic records, when, you know, on the good side of electronic medical records, if you're allergic to aspirin or penicillin and I try and prescribe it for you, the particular electronic medical record system we use won't let me. That's right. Unless I go through four more screens right. explaining why I'm still going to do it. So there's that automatic, there's a cross-reactivity, not going to let you do it. And I don't think 16 years ago that would have been available. But nowadays, if you want to override something like an allergy, you've got to go through a bit of effort to you've do jump that. through some hoops. And hopefully you'll stop at some point and say, should I? And in some cases, you do need to be given certain medications, even if it's listed as a potential reaction. But those cases are pretty rare. Um, those cases are rare. And I, like you, would like to think that we've moved beyond this in 16 years. And the other, the alternatives that that particular physician may have now. Um, Greater than aspirin. they were, right? Exactly. So Wiley, you know, sorry it happened. Glad you were trying to stick to your guns. And I've stick actually stronger. Stick stronger. And I've actually seen that. Um, you know, anecdotally, we had uh, a situation in another hospital where a patient uh, came in knowing she was allergic to aspirin. Again, there's no electronic medical record. She had chest pains, has to be dealt with immediately. Um, they give her aspirin. She says, well, I know I'm allergic to aspirin, but they must know what they're doing. And she took the aspirin and ended up in the same situation that you did with an anaphylactic reaction. And she didn't speak up. And she didn't speak up. And and when she was finally able to speak, she said, well, I thought you guys knew. And um, so, again, that that's that. Uh, well, I hope we move beyond when somebody yeah, can say, exactly. don't give it to me, that we say, okay, we promise we won't. But, uh, yeah, Wiley, don't uh, next time stand you, firm. But thanks for calling us because I think you're not alone. And I'm happy that you were firm enough to say, uh-uh. I don't want this. And hopefully people will respect that in the future and say, okay, that's right. We're not going to do that because, you know, I mean, the writing was on your card and it was literally right there. So hopefully that won't happen again. But I'm sorry you had to go through that. 
Speaking of some of the, the patient safety concerns, we've gone over a couple of those. We've talked a little bit about them. There's about six more that we want to go over. Again, some of them you mentioned things that are totally not something a, a particular individual can at all prevent. Uh, one of the ones that I would say with that is mishand- mislabeled specimens. It's not a person's responsibility to label their own specimens. It's really the medical doctors and the medical staff who have to do that. That's true. However, the last time you went to the lab, you were probably shown the vials and they said, this is you, right? And they're showing you the labels. Uh, if your lab, if your phlebotomist does that, really look at that and say, yeah, that's me. Uh, or conversely, no, my name's not Mabel. You know, so it's, again, if given that opportunity to partner in that situation. Take a look at it. Take a look at it. Because just like in every other area, there are checklists and there are double checks. And there's that double check with the patient. Like you mentioned your friend who said everybody was asking him over and over again, which side, which side, which side. And, you know, apologies to people who come into healthcare. You're going to hear it over and over again. What's your name? What's your name? What's your birthday? What's your name? What's Don't your be insulted birth? because What's your date we birth? just want to check it. Right? I know. And I get that with people I know. I mean, this is where I work. I get my health care where I work, and they, I get it too. What's your name? It's like, really? You don't know who I am? But it's Be it's more concerned about the people who don't ask exactly. than the people who do. Right. All right. Okay. And they won't let me lie about my date of birth either. Yeah. <laughs> my aunt has like... How many different dates of birth that she admits to, depending on how young she wants to pretend to be that day. And so, you know, I always ask her, so so which ID are you using? Which birth date? Which year, really? So, you know, hopefully you just have one year and you're being honest. But it will, it will happen again and again. Although I do have to say that one of the departments that, uh, that I know where I work, they don't ask the year. They just say the day and right. the month. Because they figure some people might get insulted about the year. So they work around that a little bit. And I I think that's a good plan. Okay. One of the other ones, failure to adequately manage behavioral health patients in acute care settings. This one's kind of interesting. We've heard a lot about what's going on with the mental health hospitals here on Oahu and elsewhere. Some concerns about particular individuals that are hospitalized with mental health concerns and behavior issues, staff getting unfortunately injured at work from these sorts of violent outbursts, et cetera. But what does this mean on on an average everyday basis in your standard hospital? It's very interesting because you would think this is something that really is just the purview or the responsibility of the healthcare provider, and yet it affects the visitors, the public, and it may affect the patient. There are certainly times that if a patient's had a protracted course in the intensive care unit or coming out of anesthesia, there's going to be a period where there's there's actually a psychosis type of reaction. And managing patients to keep them safe and still keeping the healthcare workers safe and the providers safe is a real balancing act sometimes. There's also just over the course of, of the decades that I've worked in healthcare, there's more recognition and appreciation of behavioral health disorders and managing behavioral health disorders. It's not something that's, um, that's shameful and, and brushed under the carpet anymore. I mean, these things need to be brought up and discussed. Sometimes if a patient comes in because they have, in the hospital setting, because they have a medical primary condition, quite often about 20% of the time our patients will have a behavioral health secondary condition. And if we don't know that, 
we can't help manage their acute care, let alone what's going on with them with the behavioral health side. And in the clinic, you know, certainly if people come in, they have those those medical needs that are primary. But if you consider about 20% of the patient, or the, the population as a whole, you know, if you just walk out the doors, 20% of the population around us, there's some element of behavioral health instability. So it's a challenge not only for the patient to manage and be upfront with the doctor and partner with the doctor with that as well, also in providing the care, how do we take into consideration there might be a barrier there to providing effective health care and how do we address that and overcome it and do what's best for the patient and, and really maximize what we can provide. Well, and certainly try and minimize any harm to others or to the individual themselves. You know, we often look at the homeless crisis and you hear these statistics Mm -hmm. that say there are a lot of people, certainly not everyone, but there are a lot of people with mental health needs that are homeless. And you'll never be able to address their their living situation without addressing their mental health needs as well. And so if we don't take a look at that in combination, we're not going to solve that problem. And if you just take out the word homeless and put medical and say, okay, if you don't address the the mental health issues, Mm -hmm. you know, and I have several patients that have suffered from schizophrenia, and you can tell them what to do. And you can tell them what medicine to take, and it may or may not happen depending on what's going on with their mental health. You kind of have to try and figure out a way to fix both of those things together, if at all possible. And, and to keep them it's safe. It's not easy. Exactly. And to keep them it's, safe. it's not an easy task. Right. Um, but it's certainly a patient safety concern for their safety as well as the safety of the, the people who are providing them with care. Absolutely. Now, there's another one that's kind of that I put under this, the heading of my job. Okay. Retained devices and unretrieved fragments. There's this wonderful picture of like, you know, surgical scissors in a chest. So really, it's, <laughs> that's the kind of thing where doctors that's have to dra- take ownership that's the drama. of that That's the dramatic thing. That's the thing. drama. Right. But, you know, if, if you're a surgeon, if you're doing a procedure, they have checklists. And, you know, Atul Gawande is a very interesting author. He writes for The New Yorker. He's also a physician. He's a surgeon. And he wrote a book a few years back that was looking at how we can be better in medicine and followed that up with something he called the checklist manifesto. And it was a whole book looking at how you can use a checklist of how many different instruments are used, sponges, anything used in an operating room to make sure that before that individual has whatever open wound closed, that all of the equipment is safely placed and disposed of accordingly. And it was actually the statistics he shows in his book showed it was very successful to have such a checklist. And that actually has really helped to decrease the, for those places that use it, the issues with retained devices or fragments or things that are left in individuals. Now, I want to take a quick break for for a quick minute. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Karen Ueda. We are talking about risk management issues and what can we all do to stay safer. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about these scary stories and this, this you know, horror story when you hear about people with retained sponges and things in their body and how you can prevent it. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. There's a good reason some Europeans like to transcend the old borders between their countries. We really need to believe that Europe was not a failure. 
Hear what it's like to live as a borderless European, take a leisurely stroll in Vienna, and learn why Albania has become a real find. Edge is a little rough, yeah, but that's part of the charm. Plus, how I started as a teenage traveler. It's all on the next travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m., following Fresh Air. On Saturday, July 26th, slide guitar master Stefan George and multi-instrumentalist Larry Spaulding bring the blues to HPR's Atherton Studio. Enjoy these veteran bluesmen in an evening of traditional country blues, contemporary songwriting, and a bit of Zydeco for added spice. That's July 26th at 7.30 p.m. For tickets, call 955-8821 during business hours or purchase online at hprtickets.org. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Karen Ueda. She is the Risk Management Director at Straub Clinic and Hospital. We're talking about patient safety concerns and how can we all partner together to make sure that we can minimize any medical errors or mistakes. Before the break, we were talking about retained devices and unretrieved fragments. And, you know, again, I put that on the list of doctor's responsibility. And we briefly mentioned Atul Gawande's Checklist Manifesto book. Very interesting book. Fabulous book. And he's such a good writer, I have to say. Whenever I read something he's written, it's just so engaging. And it's not written at a level that anybody can understand right. it. It's, it's, but it still appeals to me as a physician as well. It's That's a unique characteristic and a a unique talent that he has. But is this a common thing? I mean, you hear about it on the news. This is one of those one in a million things, or does this happen more than we think? It doesn't happen because it's one of those things that there can be a checklist for. Even though it's complex, it's one of those things that lends itself to, to this kind of checklist. His book is wonderful, and that his his whole idea of control those things that you can control have a checklist. If this stuff was easy, you wouldn't need a checklist. I mean, really, if you're going to use one sponge, you expect it one sponge back at the end of the procedure. But it's not that way at all. Um, most people who have been through surgery, thank goodness, haven't been awake to watch the surgery happen. But for those of us who have observed, it's a busy room. Uh, there are a lot of things going on. And if it's if it's just straightforward, it's not a problem. The fact that we need a checklist for it is because it is complex. Things might happen when you get in there. You might be opening more sponges. There might be an emergency. Or if you have an emergency surgery, yeah, they're going to be going 240 to save your life. Things might not be showing up in counts. So how do we make sure that we keep people safe? The checklist is a great thing to do that with. We handle the easy stuff. The checklist is easy. These types of things occur when something unusual occurs in that operating environment, when in that operating room environment. And when we deviate. When we deviate. When we deviate from the standard mm-hmm. routine. And how often, if you're talking about one thing and someone interrupts you, do you sort of go back and say, wait a minute, what was I doing? And if that happens in our daily lives, then that can happen medically as well. And so, those are those things that they try to control in that environment. Absolutely. So they're assigned tasks. So that you don't have to double guess, did they do that? Did they do that? Everyone has a role, right. checklist, responsibility. Checklist. This okay. is something that lends itself to checklists. Okay. Now, what about patient falls in the hospital? Or It's said down here, one of the top patient safety concerns, patient falls will go into the bathroom. In the hospital, I presume? Yes. Okay. Yes. So you got to go. Or in the clinic. In the clinic, you got to go. You right. press the nurse's button. You just really got to go. Or 
Hopefully you press the nurse's button. Hopefully you um, do. Or maybe you just get up and say, I can totally go. I can totally do this. I know I just had an amputation, but I can totally do this. I've got this. Um, patient falls in, in, in the hospital setting and in the clinic setting. I mean, these are real concerns, especially if you get to, you know, certainly uh, people of a certain age. And I'm not disparaging the elderly. We know this is true. You know, I have elderly relatives. We know that as, as people... Uh, are aging, they are more prone to falling. And in the hospital setting, you're not on your best game. I mean, you're not there because you're feeling good. You're there for a reason. You're on medication you may not be familiar with. You may have had surgery. Um, you're, you're certainly maybe not hemodynamically stable. There's stuff going on, and you are going to be more prone to fall. There are things that we can do to keep pa- patients safe from falling, and we do a lot of activities to keep people safe from falling. Um, we have we've done a lot to reduce that fall rate, and as I, I mentioned to you earlier when we were chatting, we think it's great we've reduced the fall rate. Not many people are falling. Certainly, people aren't getting injured, but there's still somebody falling in the hospital, and that's something that we really need to address. Sometimes these things happen when somebody's going to the bathroom and they're embarrassed, and I've had to overcome this with my own mother when she's been hospitalized. It's like, Mom, it's okay. They've seen it. You know, they're there to keep you safe, but it's it's a, a privacy thing. It's an embarrassment thing. They don't want you to see them when they have loose bowels. They don't want you to see them when they're not at their best, and and they'll they'll manage it on their own except for when they can't, and then they fall. So there's again there's that partnering there. The the hospital staff and even in the clinic staff when they they come into the clinic setting and you've done something in the clinic setting that might put them at risk for falling, we will take those steps. um, And what I mean by that is maybe a procedure you've given them a medication. We'll take those steps to keep them safe. But again, that's a partnership. Ask for help or don't be ashamed if if your healthcare provider wants to stay with you while you're using the bathroom because this is when falls happen. Well, and also, I would say, if you're on a medicine that makes you dizzy, tell someone. Right. Because rather than taking this medicine and assuming that you have to take it, there's no alternative, it's the best medicine, and you have to just be dizzy, tell somebody. The medication may have an alternative. We might have to change it. Maybe we can't treat overactive bladder because if we do, you pass out. Yes. And so there are some other things that we have to take a look at. And I would say... Falls in the hospital, yes, but falls at home, we can all help to try and partner right. to avoid that. Right. And that's something that I think falls, you know, we, we've talked before on the show about falls. If you fracture a hip, there's a 50% likelihood you'll never walk independently again. If you are older, over 65, and you fracture a hip, that's a statistic that we know about. And that's scary. And, and we're nobody not going, wants to be dependent exactly. like that. And, and not all falls can be prevented, obviously. People fall at home. Uh, people fall in a healthcare setting. It's the, the trick is to stratify the risk, figure out who's going to fall, do your best to keep them from falling, and then minimize the risk of injury if they do fall. Keep the bed low to the floor. Maybe put down mats. Um, make it easy for them to get in the bedroom and the bathroom. Get rid of the clutter. Get rid, get of, rid the of the clutter. stuff. Exactly. All that Keep them safe stuff. if they okay. do fall. Now we have two more. I want to make sure we get to our top 10 list and then we'll review them for okay. people who are keeping count. 
And the next two kind of, again, I think fall a little bit more on the medical Absolutely. professionals. Um, one of them is monitoring for breathing in someone taping strong pain medicines under the class of opioids. And I'll put that in the hospital setting. We're supposed to be monitoring. But at home, yes. you know, make sure you don't take too many pain pills because if, if you take too many, you won't breathe. I mean, that's just a known fact. So be careful with that. In the hospital, we should be monitoring you. Now, the examples that they gave from the Institute of Medicine, what sort of situations did they describe in their paper that they wrote? In the white paper, they talk about, there's one example that they give of a male patient in his 60s who received a combination of opioids and, um, you know, which is going to depress the central nervous system. Um, I'm sorry, and the the benzodiazepines that are going to depress the central nervous system, as well as an antihistamine. So there's this combination of medications that was taken in a 12-hour period, not appreciating that that's really going to depress the 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 person's ability to breathe. So now we're this talking is, like a Benadryl and a Valium exactly. and a Vicodin. I mean, yeah. it could and be less, and that combo. Exactly. And even though in the, the hospital setting we're using a generic name and we should know what these things are, if a patient gets home following surgery or if they have chronic pain or there is some, some, some reason that they're taking this combination of medications and don't appreciate that it's going to depress their, their breathing, well, they can get into serious trouble at home. So again, the partnering that would be done here. Know your, know your meds right. and, and know the, the brand name. They might say, well, it's just Oxy or it's just Xanax or it's just Valium. And I can take that along. Exactly. Sure. Know what to combine and what exactly. not to combine if you have to. All right. We've got our last one again, more on the doctor situation. Avoid reprocess or inadequate reprocessing of endoscopes and surgical instruments. I know there was recently a case, I think it was at the VA on the mainland where they were looking at uh, endoscopes and den- I think it was dental instruments that weren't completely, uh, they weren't cleaned, they weren't um, autoclaved or sterilized appropriately, and people might have been exposed to something. This is, again, falls more back on the healthcare providers. Absolutely. Make sure that this is done adequately at every situation after every patient use. We have to make sure instruments are clean. This is the one that we read, and we go. This is the big ooh, you know. Yeah, everybody reads this one. It's like factor. ew. Yeah. This definitely has the ick factor, and 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 the burden really is on those of us who are doing the reprocessing to make sure that we're doing again a checklist. It's the checklist. Have enough equipment that you don't have to rush the reprocessing. Have have the right standards in place. This is all. Uh, regulated this area of reprocessing. This is regulated. Make sure there's a checklist and that's being done properly. Everywhere, at every facility. It could happen anywhere. It's not just something that may happen at a government facility. It could occur anywhere, but, you know, facilities are responsible. And then check them before you use it. Well, so now, you know, we have just a few more minutes to talk about the program that they're doing called Speak Up. And I want to mention what those letters stand for. And we can go through them, you know, alternately. Speak up, S-P-E-A-K-U-P. First one, if you have a question, 
Speak up and ask it. You know, there's no dumb question except for the one you didn't ask. And many times I'll have, you know, people ask me questions in the office, and and I enjoy that. I actually, when somebody says, I looked it up on the Internet, I say where and help to educate them about what are good sources, what are not. But I like the fact that somebody's taking the initiative and saying, hey, you know what, I didn't understand this, so I wanted to hear more about it. And there is no stupid question. There really isn't. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, you, P, you do, the P is pay attention. Um, pay attention to the care you get. Always make sure you're getting the right treatments and the medicines by the right healthcare professionals. Do not assume anything. Now, that's that's a big order, you know, telling the, the patient to always make sure they're getting exactly what they need. Um, if our, our listeners go online, they can download this from the Joint Commission website, speak up, and there are bullet points under each of these with tips of what can be done. Tell your nurse or your doctor if something doesn't seem right. They know healthcare. We know healthcare. Nobody knows your body better than you do. Uh, the patients know their body. If it seems odd to you, speak up. There's a really good chance it is. All right. E, educate yourself. And this one goes along with some of those websites. Make sure that you understand what your diagnoses are, but also go to the right places. Mayo Clinic website, Hopkins website, Harvard. These are places that have great medical information. Be careful. You're not going to find the solution to arthritis and aging in a bottle sold at 19.95 at 2 a.m. It's not going to happen. Make sure you know what medical problems you have and also understand what you're what you're doing for treatment for those things. And it's always good. You know, know your condition and know how it's treated. Always helpful. Share decision-making. Um, the A is ask a trusted family member or a friend to be your advocate. So the A is ask. It could also be advocacy. When you come to see the doctor or you're in the hospital, this is not a good time for you. And sometimes you need that extra set of ears and that extra concerned patient to be listening. Um, four ears are better than two. Is that an expression? But, I mean, it's, it's just better to have somebody with you to help you advocate ask questions. Maybe they'll pick up what what you did not. Maybe they'll think to ask something you did not. Well, and there's always something. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people these days have smartphones. And if somebody wants to record when I tell them what to do, mm-hmm. I encourage it. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of these phones have this little, you know, memo recording device. Mm-hmm. And that's a great way that you can just hear me haunt you from your phone whenever. <laughs> and again, that's something that you and your patients have discussed and you've agreed upon. That's that partnership. I think it's a great idea. You wouldn't Absolutely. want to do that in a clandestine fashion, but you know, you'd want to be upfront about that. Yeah, you know, I want I, to record I this. want to record it because I want to remember later. Great idea. I mean, if you want to hear my voice forever, that's fabulous. Okay, Kay, know your medicines and why you take them. Big pet peeve of mine. That's a huge one. If you don't, if you only take the white pills, you don't know what they are or what they're for, that's a problem. So knowing what you're taking and writing it down, just keep a little list in your wallet and make sure you know what it's for. These things are great. When I say your, quote, blood pressure pill, as long as we know that's the one that you're taking, that's your Toprol or your Abipro, whatever it may be, fantastic. Let's all speak the same language. Your doctor can help you with that. There are pharmacies that will help you with that. There are any number of of advocacy groups that will help you understand your medications. Um, Take advantage of that. The U in Speak Up stands for use a hospital, clinic, surgery center, or other type of healthcare organization that's been carefully checked out. Now, again, this list was done in 2002, and a lot's happened since 2002. This was written in response to the Institute of Medicine report that came out in 1999. There's a lot more regulation. 
Hospitals need to be thoroughly checked out. Your your primary care physician needs to be thoroughly checked out. There's more and more eyes making sure that we're doing what we can to not only keep the patient safe, but to ensure that the patient has a positive experience, a positive healthcare experience, and is safe. Organizations like Joint Commission do this, CMS, other organizations as well. All right. And P, participate in all decisions regarding your care. And if you need it, get a second opinion. I'm never insulted if somebody says, I want to see a specialist. I want to get another opinion. Hey, more brains on the situation is fabulous. And I know sometimes people are a little reluctant and they're a little afraid. And if they say, I want a second opinion, but I don't want you to feel like I don't trust you. It's not about trust. If you want to hear it from somebody else, let's help you to do that. I think it's a great idea. And we encourage patients to do that. It, it comes to another question. We had a caller who, who didn't want to be on air and asked us something that I think would be very, uh, very astute to discuss right at this moment, which was, you know, if you have a condition and we're talking about all these issues that can happen and we're talking about participate in your care, second opinion, et cetera, would you have surgery here or should you go to the mainland? And my first thought personally would be for 99% of things, do it here. The 1% of weird things that I hope I don't have, and so far I don't, if I got something really weird that nobody else in the world had had known about, okay, so maybe I would go to the mainland. But my support network, my, my doctors, my colleagues, they are here locally. And that would be where I'd want to stay. And we've got some amazing, excellent professionals that are here. Throughout the in state, we all absolutely different specialties, do. at all different facilities. There are some fantastic doctors. And adding to that, you know, you were talking about the support group you have. The healing that or the what's going to happen to you in the hospital is a short period of time. The recovery from that and the support group you need in the aftercare, the continuity of care, how that information gets shared among your your professionals, among your team. This is a pretty big team. And if part of your team is not here, um, that's that it makes it harder to get better. That could that could add an additional risk. Now, however, having said that, there are some specialty things that you may want to go to the mainland. And that's a discussion you would have with your doctor. And I've seen physicians sometimes support that and say, Yes, I agree with you for this particular diagnosis, for this particular type of cancer, for this particular heart condition, yeah, maybe you should go to the mainland. But then that coordination takes place even between here and the mainland. It's an electronic world. It's a small world. And they can continue to be part of that team. But that would be a personal choice and definitely a discussion you want to have with your physician. Well, and I'd also, just as a, as a very unusual caveat, put to that the U.S. mainland only because there's medical tourism out there, and that's a whole nother show that we could have that sometime is. about should I go to India or Thailand or somewhere else for my medical procedures? And I'm just going to just throw out there, probably not. Well, they're not going to have this kind of oversight. Well, and and so that's we'll, we'll save that for another show, Karen. I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. All right, we'll have to have you back again. Karen Oueda is the Risk Management Director at Straub Clinic. She's been in the field for over three decades and has a passion for patient safety and wants all of us to have a good hospital experience 
and stay safe during our stay. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook and get updates about what's going to be coming in the near future. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week. We're going to talk about the DASH diet. Can it really help you get off of blood pressure medicine? We're going to talk with an expert. I'll see you right here Monday at 5 on The Body Show. See you then. Woo!